Last month uh, was the largest globally watched sporting event. It was the World Cup. And on Sunday, December 18th, we got to the World Cup final between France and Argentina. France was trying to win their second consecutive World Cup. And in Argentina's case, uh, Lionel Messi uh, was trying to cement his legacy as the greatest of all time by winning a World Cup for his country. And I didn't see it because I was here at church. It was at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. Not a good time for me. And, uh, but they played for 120 minutes, 90 minutes of regular time, another 30 minutes of extra time, and they were still tied 3-3. Three to three. And when a soccer match that needs to be decided finishes in a draw, they go to penalty kicks. And penalty kicks are very exciting to watch. In fact, I, I watched these penalty kicks in the church office because the service was over and everybody had left, and I heard it was in penalty kicks. So I opened my laptop, and I sat there, and I watched the penalty kicks take place. And, and you know, penalty kicks are incredible because there are there 1.5 billion people around the world watching them on TV. There are 80,000 people in that stadium. There are 26 players on the roster of France and 26 players on Argentina's roster. And there were 11 players on the field at the time as active players. But in the moment of a penalty kick, they can't do anything but watch. It's one on one. It's the ultimate showdown, the kicker and the goalie. It's a showdown between two people, and it ended up being won this year by Argentina, a showdown in the deserts of Qatar. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 begins this way. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, this is not a showdown in the deserts of Qatar, but this is a showdown in the deserts of Judea. And this was a big showdown, Jesus and the devil. This is a story, by the way, that we only know about. This is a story that we only have because Jesus must have decided to share it. He was the only one there. And so he must have decided to share this with his disciples, which means he wanted them to know this story, which means he wants you to know this story. There's a reason why we have this story. I want to make some general observations before we dive into, I think, what is probably a familiar story for many of you. Here's some, some sort of general observations. Number one, this story affirms that there is a spiritual world around us. Christianity and the scriptures reject the worldview that is known as naturalism, which means that there is a natural explanation for everything that happens. We very much believe that there is a spiritual realm where there are things happening. Secondly, this text affirms that there is an enemy of our souls. There is a real enemy. In the ESV, they call him the devil. The Greek word actually is best translated the tempter, but we might know him as the tempter, as the devil, as Satan. There is a real enemy. We also see that there is an ongoing battle for our souls. We do not struggle against flesh and blood, but there is a battle between spiritual kingdoms. Another observation is this, is that God can use the battle to grow you. That's good news for us this morning. God, it's said that Jesus was led not by the devil into the wilderness, but Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness which simply means that God sometimes will lead us into things that will grow us even though they are difficult and challenging for us. Now, it's taught clearly in James chapter 1, verse 13 that God never tempts anyone to do evil. If we sin, we cannot say that God tempted us to sin, but he does allow circumstances to test us and to test and reveal our character. So while God is not a tempter, he is a tester. The devil is the tempter. 
And then the last general observation of this story is that there's so much at stake. Uh, Our lives here and now and our lives there and then. So this story, if you're familiar with it, the devil tempts Jesus three times. And I want us to look at each of these temptations because each of these temptations represents a type of temptation. And it's probably a temptation that you're very familiar with. And the first one is this. It's the temptation to not trust God. The temptation to not trust God. In verse 2, it says, After Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness after his water baptism. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he is fasting. He is praying and he is going without food. Now, I I learned this week in my research that 40 days is about the long longest period of time that a human can go without food before suffering permanent damage. I, th- I thought maybe it was more like 40 minutes, but 40 days uh, before you can go without food without suffering permanent damage. So when it says that he went 40 days and 40 nights without food, and then it just sort of throws in, and he was hungry, it's like, yeah, obviously. Jesus is very hungry here, and the tempter says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, it's interesting because later in Jesus' life, we're going to see him do things like this, aren't we? Jesus miraculously multiplies bread and fish to feed a crowd of well over 5,000 people. Jesus' first miracle, he turns something of one substance into something of another substance. He turns water into wine simply to spare a young couple a social faux pas. So what is the problem here? This doesn't seem like that bad of a suggestion. It seems actually kind of harmless. You're hungry. Turn stones into bread. You can do it. You might as well. It's cheaper. It's easier than going finding your own. But this suggestion is a problem for three key reasons. Number one, it's who's making the suggestion. (laughs) This is not the father. If the father said to Jesus, hey, turn the stones into bread so you can eat something, then Jesus would have done it. But this is not the father. This is the tempter. And Jesus came to earth to do the will of the father and the will of the father alone. That's why the way that he countered this temptation was to remind the devil that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' life and energy and strength was found in doing the will of his father, not in consuming natural food. And so the problem with the suggestion was that it wasn't the father making it. The second problem with the suggestion is who would have benefited from him doing this? Nobody else would have benefited from this. Jesus alone would have benefited from him doing this. And Jesus never used his power or his standing or his status for personal advantage. He only did miracles and signs and wonders to reveal the kingdom and to bless others. But the third reason why this suggestion is a problem for Jesus is how it was framed. The tempter said, if you are the Son of God. Now, the previous passage in the end of Matthew chapter 3 is the story of John the Baptist, who we learned about last week, baptizing Jesus in water. And Jesus is baptized in water, and as he comes out of the water, Matthew 3.17 says this, A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So think about this. Jesus is led into the wilderness And the last thing he hears as he heads into the wilderness are the words, this is my son. 
and I'm pleased in him. Those words are ringing in his ears and resonating in his heart as he's going 40 days and 40 nights without food and fasting. And then the very next voice he hears says this, if you are the son of God. Satan is actually asking here the same question he asked Eve in Genesis chapter three. Did God really say? Did God really say? Here's what Satan is saying. Can you trust God? Can you trust his word? Can you trust his character? If you are the son of God, why are you hungry? Why are you hungry? Now, when we hear that question, it's kind of more familiar to us. Because maybe you've wrestled with questions like this before. If I'm loved by God, why am I sick? If I'm loved by God, why did I lose my job? Why didn't I get the promotion that I deserved? If I'm loved by God, why are my children going through that? Why are they making those decisions? If I'm loved by God, why aren't all of my prayers always answered? And this is the battleground for all temptation. Do we trust God? Even in the wilderness, even on day 40, do we trust God? Jesus had to learn to trust the Father. And this was a battleground for that learning. And so you and I do also. Now realize Jesus' life, we know the rest of his life. Jesus' life is moving towards a moment where he will hear this temptation again, but not from the voice of the tempter in the wilderness, but from the voice of a mocking crowd as he hangs on a cross. And it will sound like this. If you are the Christ, come off that cross and save yourself. The wilderness was the preparation for what he was going to face at the cross where he would hear it again. If you are the son of God, does he really love you? Can you really trust him? But Jesus knew as he hung on that cross, if he saved himself, he could never save us. And to save us, he could not save himself. And what this means for you and me this morning is that God's redemptive plans and purposes for our lives come to pass not by always keeping us out of the wilderness, but sometimes his spirit will lead us right into the wilderness to accomplish, accomplish his plans and purposes. Now, when we think about this temptation turning, turning stone into bread, this temptation, which is ultimately a temptation to not trust God by turning stone into bread, it's hard to relate to on some level because you and I don't have the ability, the power. It never has probably crossed your mind to try and turn a piece of stone into a piece of bread, right? We are not tempted to turn stones into bread, but when we do not trust God, we might be tempted to turn beauty into vanity, Strength into domination, money into meaning, influence into manipulation, intellect into arrogance, people into pawns to use or problems to remove, options into anxiety, opportunities into worries, talent into pride, status into superiority, wealth into indulgence, humor into mockery, pleasure into addiction, success into significance, failure into despair, independence into isolation, and community into cliques. How? Well, we trust in those things we have been given more than the one who gives us those good things. And when we trust in the gifts more than the givers, we will use those gifts to serve ourselves and not others. We'll be looking to turn stones into bread. 
And remind yourself, we have to learn to remind ourselves that life, remember Jesus said, life is not about bread alone. It comes, life doesn't come from any of those things, but life comes by every word that comes from the mouth of God doing his will, a God we can trust even when we are in the wilderness. So there is a temptation to not trust God. Second temptation that we see here is the temptation to use God, to use God. Verse 5 it says, then the devil took him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, the, there's, not, there's not a consensus agreement on where exactly the devil took Jesus here. But, but uh, some people believe that the pinnacle of the temple is the southeastern corner of the temple area, uh, which was over 300 feet above the floor of the Kidron Valley. But wherever it is, Jesus now is here on the pinnacle of the temple, and here's the temptation, verse 6. And he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, Satan is quoting the Old Testament here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And what's interesting what the devil does here, the tempter, uh, he kind of gives up on tempting Jesus to doubt his relationship with the Father. Instead, what he's doing here is he's trying to tempt Jesus not to doubt that relationship, but to use that relationship in a self-serving manner. In other words, it sounds like this. If you really are the Son of God, use it to your advantage. It's interesting. It's interesting that the devil knows Scripture, <laughs> And he uses scripture here. It's ironic because the devil is tempting Jesus to use God and to do so the devil is using God. And he uses God here to tempt Jesus. But what we have to notice, if you know the passage that the devil is quoting is Matthew, or sorry, it's Psalm 91. The devil actually misquotes Psalm 91. Or he leaves something out. Psalm 91, he gets the first part right. He will command his angels concerning you. But the tempter conveniently leaves out the next phrase, which says, to guard you in all of your righteous ways. Here's what the devil is doing. The devil is twisting the psalm, which offers peace and deliverance in distress for those who are righteous, not a right to force God to act whenever one wishes. God is not at our whim. He does not do what we demand, and that's what the devil is tempting Jesus to do here, to use God. One of the commentaries said this about this temptation. Such a spectacular display as jumping from this great height unharmed would have gained Jesus an enthusiastic following, but it would not have followed the Father's messianic and redemptive plan of suffering and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Satan, listen to this, Satan was in effect dangling before Jesus a speeded up way, a shortcut to accomplishing his mission. And we can't use God in that way. Three things God is not. Number one, God is not a shortcut to what you want most. He's not a shortcut. He will not be used for our personal preferences and agenda. Following Jesus is not the easy path, but it is the right one. And Jesus Christ took no shortcuts to doing the Father's will, and he would not hear. Philip Yancey, wonderful author in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, writes this about the temptations. He says, as I look back on the three temptations, I see that Satan proposed an enticing improvement. He tempted Jesus toward the good parts of being human, without the bad, to savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and of agriculture. 
to confront risk with no danger. Throw yourself off the temple. To enjoy fame and power without the prospects of painful rejection, which we'll see in the third temptation. In short, here's what the devil's tempting Jesus to, to wear a crown but not a cross. This is the temptation that Jesus thankfully resisted, but many of us as followers, if we're honest, still long for. The cross, or the crown without the cross. But Jesus is not a shortcut to what you and I want most. God is also not a tool, he's a treasure. Christmas, my wife got me a blue carbon steel cooking pan. It's a, it's a, it's a pan that is, came recommended by famous chefs, like, I don't know if you'll know their names, but Brooke Williamson and Grant Ackett's, who's the chef at Alinea, which is like the number one restaurant in the country in Chicago. And these are the pans I guess they use. And, and so she bought me one because she knows how much I, I love cooking and more so how much I love food. And, and so this pan is like, it's, I've never seen anything like it before. And there's a very specific way you're supposed to treat it and wash it and take care of it and oil it and actually builds up this thing called a patina over time, which just adds more flavor as you keep cooking. I'm so excited to obviously very passionate and excited about using this but I see it for what it is I celebrate that pan not because it's the treasure but because it's the tool to give me what I treasure which is a perfectly cooked steak (laughs) or a delicious filet of fish see the pan is not the treasure the pan is the tool the treasure is the meal and we have to be careful that we see God as the treasure and not the tool God is not useful, he is beautiful. He is not what we use to get what our hearts truly find beautiful. And if your heart most finds beautiful comfort, you might use God and your relationship with God to try to secure comfort for yourself. You might say things like this, if I'm good and faithful and serve God, then I'll have a comfortable life. But then what happens when life happens and your life is no longer comfortable? You disenfranchise. Many people will walk away from their faith. Why? Because all along the way, Jesus was not the treasure. He was simply a tool to get what his heart or your heart or her heart truly treasured. Pay attention to your heart. We don't use God. He's not a tool. He's a treasure. And then lastly, God is not a means to an end. He is the beginning and the end. We can't use God. We have to be careful how we use God's word to defend our opinions and biases, grabbing little scriptures and little quotes and little phrases to try to make our cases and make our causes and even advance our political agendas and our personal preferences. Be careful. Be very careful when you give God credit for feeling a certain way about something. Make sure he actually feels that way. And it's not just that you feel that way and you've found a verse that makes you feel like maybe he feels that way too. Be careful. You know what that is? That is taking the Lord's name in vain. Whenever we attribute to God an opinion or a preference that the scriptures do not clearly say belong to him, we are taking his name in vain. So we need to be careful about that. Careful assuming that God feels the way you feel about every issue. He probably doesn't. God fits in none of our boxes and will not be used. Last Monday, our country was captured by this uh, injury that happened in this football game. And Thank God for the, the doctors and the medicine and the healing work in DeMar Hamlin. Thank God for this Bills player who literally dropped dead on the field and resuscitated and, and, and is now recovering in a hospital. And says, Thank God for all of that. And it was amazing to see our country come together and pray for him. And, and I think that's wonderful. But if we, only, if we only call out to God in crisis, we might be using him. And so there's that temptation to use God. And Jesus said, you will not tempt the Lord your God because there's none like him. The last one here 
is the temptation not to use God, but the temptation to be God. Verse 8, let's finish the story. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you. And there's a whole other conversation about whether or not Satan could actually offer that in that moment. But he says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Other gospels say then the devil left him until an opportune time, which means the devil did not leave Jesus alone for the next three years, of course. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, Here, in the final temptation, the devil unmasks himself. He's not even trying to be sneaky anymore. He's really not trying to trick Jesus anymore. He just straight out says, I want you to worship me. I want you to fall down and worship me, which we believe is the reason he fell to begin with, was the desire, Lucifer's desire to not serve God, but to be God. And so Satan here says, I want you to worship me, and if you will worship me, I will offer you the exact same thing. All the kingdoms of this world will worship you. All the glory will go to you. Jesus, you'll be worshipped by all. You just got to worship me. Now, we know that Jesus will be worshipped by all. The scriptures say that there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess under heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. So again, what that Satan is offering Jesus is rightly his, but not now. Not in this way and not at this time. Jesus will be worshipped, but Jesus' worship, him being worshipped, is a result of him bowing his will to the Father, not bowing his will to the devil. The temptation to be exalted and worshipped was a problem because it was not the Father's way and it was not the Father's timing. And at the heart of all sin is the desire to be God, to rule our own lives and to be in control. Genesis chapter 3, if we go back to the first moment of temptation between the serpent and Eve and Adam, the temptation is if you will, you will be like God, you will know what God knows. We were created, you and I were created to be like God, but not to be God. Created to bear his image, but never to replace him. And Jesus rebukes the devil, tells him to leave, and says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There's no other God. Him alone shall you serve. So, three temptations. The temptation to trust God, or not trust God, I should say. The temptation to use God, and the temptation to be God. I'm going to ask the musicians to join as we close. As we finish, how do we face temptation? I mean, that's important for us to talk about this morning. How do we do this? What do we learn here? There's two things that we see Two practical things that we see, and then one very important thing that we'll close with. The practical things is this. It said that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The most important factor in fighting temptation is to be filled with the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of Jesus is, is dwelling within you, that you are abiding in Christ, that you are walking in the Spirit and not walking in the flesh. If you walk in the flesh, you fulfill the desires of the flesh. But if you walk in the Spirit, you will honor the Lord with your life. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was asked one time, how do you overcome the devil when he comes to tempt you? And he replied, well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, who lives in here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here but he's moved out. Now I live here. 
the Spirit of the Lord within our lives is the non-negotiable in dealing with the temptation. But the other factor in fighting temptation is not just to be filled with God's Spirit, but to be filled with God's Word. Psalm 119.11, we hide his word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. Now, over time, that's come for many people to mean memorizing scripture, which, by the way, is an important spiritual discipline. We should memorize scripture. But he didn't say hide the scriptures in my mind. He said hide the scriptures in my heart, that these scriptures would live within us. And Jesus Christ responds to the devil all three times by quoting God's word. It's, It's important for us to realize that Jesus did not stand in his own wisdom, his own strength, or his own cleverness. He stood on God's word. And you will never have victory over temptation if you try to do it in your own wisdom, your own strength, your own cleverness. We must stand upon God's word. In closing, as I finish, there's one more key. If we're gonna have victory over temptation, We must look to Jesus. Now, anyone who studies the temptation in the wilderness of Jesus will see that there is a clear connection between this story and the Old Testament. There is some tremendous symbolism in what happens in the wilderness here with what we read about in the Old Testament. There's two things we see about Jesus from this story. And the first one is this, that Jesus is the faithful Israelite. He's the faithful Israelite. The Old Testament is the story of God choosing a people for himself through a man named Abraham who eventually became the Jewish nation, the Israelites. And they spent not 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, but they spent 40 years in the wilderness where temptation after temptation, they failed. It's easy for us to look down our nose at them and say, why couldn't they get it right? You and I would have done the exact same thing. And they couldn't get it right. The temptations, this is what one of the commentaries says, the temptations reveal Jesus as the faithful Israelite. He passes tests that Israel failed. Before Israel entered Canaan, Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, revealed the failings of the wilderness generation so that Israel would never repeat their sins again. Of course, we know that they ended up doing so. And Jesus' quotes from the Old Testament are all from that portion of Moses' sermon. Jesus answers Satan's three temptations from Moses' correction of Israel's sins in the wilderness. There's a connection Jesus is making clear for us. He's the faithful Israelite. Throughout the Old Testament, the question is, will there be a remnant of Israelites who will be faithful and serve God? And there always was a remnant. But when we get to Jesus, we find that Jesus is the remnant of one. He's the true and better Israel. He is the faithful Israelite who kept the law perfectly. He said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And in passing this test in the wilderness, it reminds us that Jesus is the faithful Israelite. Where Israel got it wrong, he got it right. Where you and I get it wrong, Jesus never did. He led a sinless life. Jesus' victory in the wilderness is a snapshot of his entire life. Jesus kept God's law perfectly for us. He kept the covenant for us, not just as our example, but as our substitute. And then the last thing that we see when we look at this story is that Jesus is not just the faithful Israelite, but Jesus is the second Adam. He's the true and better Adam. When you think of Genesis 3, which I've already referenced this morning a couple times, the temptations in the wilderness for Jesus mirror the temptations that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. Did God really say? Adam and Eve in their first temptation were tempted with the allure of food, the the, the fruits, Jesus with the bread. Adam and Eve were tempted to use their relationship with God for personal gain, that they would know what he knows. Jesus was tempted to use his relationship with God for personal gain. And then lastly, Adam and Eve were tempted to choose between Satan and between the Lord, and they chose to bow to the enemy. But Jesus said, Satan, be gone. 
Here's what I read this week. Adam and Eve were in paradise. Jesus was in the vast, desolate wilderness of Judah, Judea. Adam and Eve were physically content and satisfied. They were free to eat from any of the trees of the garden, save the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus was hungry. He was starving. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Adam and Eve were together. They had each other for company and support. Jesus was alone. But Adam and Eve, they are the ones that rapidly succumbed to Satan's wiles, carrying the entire human race into sin, misery, destruction, physical and spiritual death, while Jesus in the wilderness stood firm as the Savior who was going to bring life and salvation to all humanity. What Adam did, Jesus undid. What Adam didn't do, Jesus did. What Adam got us into, Jesus got us out of. And this is how Paul says it in Romans 5. Therefore, as one sin led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ, his person and his work, leads to justification, the forgiveness of sins, and life for all of humankind. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, Jesus, many will be made righteous. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is the second Adam who gets us out of what Adam got us into. What is our problem? Our problem is that as humans, we are in the first Adam, born with a sin nature. The things you're tempted to do, they already exist inside of you. That sin is already in you because you've been created with a sin nature. That's our problem. What is our hope? As believers, we are in the second Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered temptation all the way to Calvary. Jesus had his own garden temptation right before the cross. And in that moment, we see him still faithful Israelites, the second Adam, the one who did for us what we could not do for ourselves, got us into what Adam, got us into what we could have never got into on our own because of his grace and his work. Let's pray together this morning.